This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. As usual, I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and we are gathered together with our regular panelists for the 16th episode of the show. We are jumping back in after um, about a four-month hiatus, and we are sitting down with the now, and I'm going to use this title because I can, Dr. Jeffrey C. Waddington, though he still has to walk, he has successfully passed his oral exams for his doctoral dissertation, and so we are rejoicing with you, Jeff. We are thankful that all those years of labor have come to fruition, and we are glad to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. And we are also gathered with uh, David Filson, David Owen Filson, who will hopefully soon be Dr. Filson. And uh, Dave, it's great to have you back on the show. It's great to be here. Um, Anything new happening in y'all's lives besides what we've just stated? Oh, I guess I could. Since the last time we uh, released an episode, uh, I'm now the stated supply at Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, and also serving as the communications director for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Yeah, that's very exciting. Jeff's got a very full plate now and lots of ministry opportunities and development things going on there with the Alliance, and we're, we are thankful to God for opening that door for you, Jeff. It's great. And Dave, what have you had going on? Well, um, I, uh, you know, a few months back passed my uh, oral and written comprehensive exams, and so I'm getting my head around writing the dissertation uh, for my doctorate at uh, Westminster Seminary. So that and just, you know, pastoring here in Nashville. You ended up teaching the course, right, on Jonathan Edwards at RTS back in January? I did indeed. I did. I did. I taught um, the course that I have taught for the MDiv uh, students at RTS Charlotte for the last few years. Uh, I attenuated it for uh, the DMIN program, and they had me come out. And so it was my first time to teach for the Doctor of Ministry uh, program there in Jan- just this past January. So I had a great time, some great brothers in ministry there, and in fact, I have a stack of papers here to my left that I need to be grading uh, later tonight and uh, tomorrow night. <laughs> That's great. It's a thrill, isn't it? <laughs> That's Man, great. I tell you what, after a point, it's like, oh my goodness, but um, I enjoy it. I do. I do. That's and I geek out over like formatting and footnotes and that kind of thing, you know, so... That's great, Dave. Um, I, I also wanted to tell our listeners that uh, we've taken several months off, and there have been quite a number of times that Jeff, Dave, and I have gotten together and, and started to record, and things have come up in pastoral ministry, and we wanted to thank you for being patient. It's been very humbling to have a number of people ask us when we're going to start up again, and um, also we wanted to take this opportunity just to say that while we love doing this show and we love all the blogs and the podcasts that we can be a part of on the Reform Forum, that our ministries do come first, and we're thankful for the local church. I've been exceedingly busy in our fourth year of church planning, 
and thankful that God has given me a desire to put that first. And so, um, again, we're grateful to be back on the show, but we wanted you to know that um, that our love for the local church definitely comes before um, all of our other ministry opportunities that we try to engage in. Um, before we jump into the show, are, are there any book recommendations that you guys wanted to mention? Anything that's been written about Edwards over the last couple months or anything coming up that we ought to announce? Um, Kyle Strobel has a new book on Jonathan Edwards on spiritual formation. Uh, the title is escaping me right now. Sorry, Kyle. Uh, brand new. I think it's Center Varsity Press. Uh, just yes, type in his. Yeah. Yeah. You type in his. Go to IVP or Amazon and type in his name, and it will come up. Uh, it's on spiritual formation and Jonathan Edwards. Is it called Formed for God's Glory and Spiritual Practices? I think that's the one. I think that's the one. I'm having a hard time pulling this up. Let me see. I think it's called Formed for the Glory of God, Learning from the Spiritual Practices of Jonathan Edwards, and that did just come out, and Kyle's just pumping out these books, and we're thankful for his work. Um, Anything else? You know, I did, uh, for Reform Media Review, uh, just a few weeks ago, I did a review of, of uh, Levering's The Theology of Augustine. And while not directly about Edwards, it's interesting to read uh, Levering's analysis of some of the major works of Augustine, how Edwardsian Augustine really is, <laughs> if I can say it so anachronistically. But um, uh, yep. it, it really, for, for those who are interested in the the sort of Augustinian thread that runs through uh, through Edwards, you know, things dealing with happiness and uh, beauty and some of those sorts of things. Uh, that's a, that's a great, but it's just a great book, you know, on its on its own. I'm going to be doing the entry for the upcoming uh, encyclopedia of Jonathan Edwards that Yale is putting together, and I'm doing the entry on Augustine and Augustinianism and Edwards. And I was just really taken with how um, consistently the things that Levering was saying about Augustine was consistently making me think of, of things about Edwards and things I've read in Edwards over the years. Yeah, that's great. Um, I don't know if it's in place for me to announce this, um, but our our friend Bill Schweitzer, who we hope to have on the show, is putting together an Edwards conference um, for February 2014. And um, Jeff and I are both planning to be there, um, giving papers there. Um, Doug Sweeney's going to be there, right, Jeff? Yes, that's correct. I believe John Payne is going to be there, and then um, several other uh, men who have written on Edwards. You know who else is going to be there, Jeff? Uh, I believe that Gerald McDermott will be there. Okay. Well, and I need to check and make sure that we can announce that. I just wanted to get that out in this. And if you are, if if we can, and we leave this in, if you live in the UK and you can make it, it's going to be at the University of Durham or Durham University, um, February of 2014. Um, and we'd love to see you there. Um, well, the last time we were together, Dave, we uh, had you kind of guide us through the first half of a biography of Edward's life, and we ended up in 1739 with sort of that that hinge or that turning point in his ministry where he preached through a history of the work of redemption, a series of sermons from March to August, 
a series of sermons on the book of on a prophecy out of Isaiah, um, in which he ran through redemptive history, taking it through the different epochs of redemptive history and how the whole Bible's about Christ and then moving out into church history and how God carries on the work of redemption uh throughout uh, human history and just what a, a pivotal time that is for Edwards and what an important work that is in the development of Edwards' theology. And we left off with you explaining that to us. And so as we, we start in on the second half of this biography, we want to pick up in 1740 in Edwards' life, and we want to try to make it to the end in this episode if we can, just hitting on the high the highlights and the, the high points of his life and what God did through him and all the events there. And Jeff, um, I wanted to turn to you to ask us to start this off and talk to us about what happened in 1740 that was important. What do we want to know about Edward's sure. life then? Uh, two items that I want to to uh, focus on. One would be the visit of George Whitfield uh, in October of 1740 uh, to Northampton. And of course, he's obviously visiting the colonies as a whole, uh, but stopping in to uh, visit with Edward's. And then uh, after that, we can look at uh, Edward's personal narrative that he wrote uh, at the request of the Reverend Aaron Burr. Going back to the visit of George Whitfield, uh, Whitfield and Edwards had had some correspondence uh, prior to his coming, and Edwards had invited him when uh, uh, he found out that uh, Reverend Whitfield would be uh, coming to the colonies. He said, well, if you're going to be up this way, uh, please uh, stop uh, in at Northampton, and he did, and uh, preached. Uh, and it said that uh, Jonathan Edwards was in the in the pew uh, crying. He was so moved by Whitfield's preaching. And uh, what is what is significant in in, in Whitfield's visit, apart from the fact that that uh, it's a uh, you know. Part of the uh, the igniting of what we now know as the great the first great awakening uh, is that uh, Edwards from that visit forward will move away from the regular preaching of sermons from a full manuscript. Hmm. Uh, up to that time, uh, it was his habit to preach from a full manuscript, but uh, he would start from this point on. At least that's what the scholars tell us. Uh, Wilson Kimnack, I believe, being the, the main one, has stressed this point that with the visit of Whitfield, uh, Edward starts to uh, move away from the full manuscript and will adopt uh, outlines. And uh, he will he will use a full manuscript at significant points, but it will not be the regular uh, practice for him to use a full manuscript all the time from this point forward. Uh, and then in December of 1740, the Reverend Aaron Burr, who is uh, his son-in-law, I don't know if he's his son-in-law at this point, but uh, if he's not at this point, he will become his son-in-law, uh, asks him to write the personal narrative, and we're familiar with that, that I believe is published in volume 16 of the Yale edition of the works of Edwards, uh, edited by George Cleghorn, uh, and that where you have that, you may be familiar with that famous passage where Edward talks about the fact that he has a uh, uh, a sweet conviction of the uh, truth of divine sovereignty, but that he hadn't always had that conviction, uh, but or delightful conviction. Uh, 
but that uh, in coming to faith in Christ, that his understanding and commitment to the truth of God's sovereignty was something that, that changed, that he went from despising the doctrine to loving it, to finding it delightful. Uh, now that's, uh, if you heard the name Reverend Aaron Burr, he said, where have I heard that name before? Well, Reverend Burr, who would eventually become president of Princeton uh what now is Princeton University, uh, would be the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards and would have a son also by the name of Aaron Burr, who goes on to become vice president of the United States and then goes off and assassinates or kills uh, Alexander Hamilton in a, in a duel. Mm. Yeah, very interesting how all those people kind of overlap in early American history. Um both the um, establishment of Presbyterianism and the influence of Princeton and um, the founding of, you know, the United States government in its inception. Right. Uh, it's very, very fascinating crossovers. He's, the sad thing with regard to Aaron Burr Jr. is that uh, Aaron Burr, as I already said, had been the president of Princeton. He was the president of Princeton before Edwards, and he ends up dying in office. Uh, Edwards uh, himself becomes president. Uh, with the passing of his son-in-law, and he lasts what two months and gets and the inoc- yeah get the inoculation and he dies and then then the same thing happened to Davies right yeah yeah it's fascinating uh, there was a for three men in a row it was not healthy to be president of Princeton but uh, the the sad thing apart from that is that Aaron Burr Jr. his father dies and then very shortly after that his mother dies. Hmm. And so we, we're not sure what kind of an upbringing he had, uh, but he, it does not appear that he was a Christian in any sense of the word. Uh, and that, that seems to be evidenced by his uh, duel with Alexander Hamilton. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Jeff, as you've already mentioned, that Whitfield comes and preaches at Northampton, and he's such a monumental figure in church history, and with regard to the Great Awakening, 1740-1741, tell us what happens with Edwards. What does he preach that becomes so famous as it's almost riding on the heels of Whitfield and his ministry? Yes, uh, July 8th of 1741, Edwards preaches in Enfield. I believe at that point it's in Massachusetts. It is now, uh, although Enfield itself has not moved, but the state line has, so the Enfield is now in Connecticut. Uh, But he preached uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was not the first time he preached it. Uh, He had preached it to his home congregation in Northampton. Uh, But he preached it, and that's the, the occasion for which it is known. Because of the response of the congregation, he actually was not able to complete the sermon. Hmm. And I believe the Yale edition of where the volume that has that sermon, there, there's actually a full manuscript version, and then there's an outline version. Is that yeah, right, David? There is. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. So that that's uh, – and in God's providence, it's kind of funny. I used to live just north of Enfield in the town of Springfield. Huh. Yep. It's a beautiful um, area. Now, you were saying when we were talking earlier, Jeff, that Edwards actually attributes the Great Awakening not to his preaching of this sermon, but to the influence of his preaching of his series on justification, which I guess is in that 100-page, um, somewhat of an essay now in his writings um, that he preached in 1734, right? 
Well, there there would be one of one of the awakenings or revivals that he traces to that the preaching or the the lecture. It's not clear that the justification series was a, was whether it was a Sunday or Sabbath day sermon or whether it was a weekday lecture. Hmm. Uh, but it was, and it was multiple parts. But yes, as you as you and David and I know, the the treatise on justification clearly has been reworked for publication. Mm-hmm. But that's a, he clearly saw. At least the awakening that occurred in Northampton, he attributed by God's grace to to the preaching of that s- series uh, on justification by faith. Now, anybody who has read Edwards much notices that there's sort of a development at this period in his writing, maybe you could even say a transition, where he begins to talk about true and false conversion more pointedly. Um, 1741, the year he preaches Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is also the year that he delivers in September. So he preaches Sinners in July, and in September he preaches Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God at the Yale Commencement. Um, and it's published this year, as is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, published that year. Um, and that Distinguishing Marks is really written because there are these great experiences that people are having and the question is, how do we distinguish between what Hebrews um, 6, the writer of Hebrews talks about, the um, those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, the powers of the age to come, sort of had these temporary, emotional, uh, they received the word with joy, the second hearers in Jesus' parable, the four soils. How do we distinguish them from true converts, right? And that becomes sort of a, a mark of Edward's um, writing from here on. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it, it Distinguishing marks is kind of a, and, and David, you can correct me or confirm this, is kind of a first run at religious affections. Yes, exactly. Very good. He I, um, he gets into trouble with the the, uh, the leadership of the of the university, the college, I guess at that point, uh, at Yale, because he doesn't outright condemn the uh, pro revival faction. Uh, and yet at the same time, when you actually read the sermon, I think he spends more time being critical of the pro-revival uh, faction, which, right. of course, he would consider himself part of that pro-revival faction. But he, he basically he says, okay, there are certain things that are happening uh, in the awakening that, that are not signs of a true of, – of a, a real work of the Holy Spirit. Then there are things that are. And so he gives, I think, pretty good <clears throat> direction and advice, but it does create um, a bit of havoc on the campus of Yale. Uh, David, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. What, what you see happening here, 1740-41, um, obviously, uh, maybe that's not the very, very beginning of the awakening. Uh, again, as we've said, you go back to 34 with the uh, justification series. Maybe that's the, the first fuse lit, at least there locally uh, in Northampton. But here by the early 40s, what you've had, right, is um, very effective preaching happening. Very, very effective because you have Whitfield, as you said, who's very effective, affective in terms of his oratory. Uh, right? It was uh, David Garrick who said, I would give a hundred guinea if I could only say oh like Mr. Whitfield. <laughs> mm. So he's very affective 
in terms of his oratory. Edwards, obviously very effective in terms of his wordsmithing. That was part of what was going on in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Edwards was no Whitfield in terms of his presence in the pulpit, but his wordsmithing in that sermon, and people have probably heard the, the stories of people holding on to the pew in front of them for fear that the floor was going to open up and they'd be swallowed into hell, etc. So with this um, effective preaching happening, Edwards is sensing the need to distinguish between true and false conversion. And yeah, what you have happening in, in 40 and 41, or with 41 with distinguishing marks, and even the next year with 42, with some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England, really is a building up to 46, mm-hmm. as you've alluded to, Jeff, with uh, the, the fuller, more mature, thorough treatise on religious affections. Right. It's, it's interesting also that I know a lot of our readers, if they're familiar with Edwards' um, history at all, they'll know the stories about Sarah Edwards and her sort of, um, you know, religious ecstasies or whatever. She's out walking and she's overcome. And, you know, again, all the charismatics love to point to this because <laughs> they think this is a basis for, you know, continuing gifts. And, and a lot of strange things happen to her. And Edwards bears witness to that. And that happens at the beginning of 1742. So all of this is happening. Um, 1741 really is an enormously important year in yes. Edwards' ministry. And I, I noted to Jeff, and I'd never noticed this except looking at Yale's chronology, Dave, that 1741 is also the year that Samuel Hopkins comes to study with the Edwards. And that seems important because Hopkins is going to be an enormous blemish on Edwards' history with mm-hmm. Hopkinsianism. You know, he's he's an understudy that takes Edwards in a place he didn't mean to go with the New England theology. It's just very interesting that all of that is happening in that one year. Um, you know, a lot, lot of things that God's doing, a lot of things that are happening there. Um, other thoughts on 1741 or 42? Other than I, I agree with you. I think it is um, that 40, 41, 42 is pivotal time. Again, it's it's the beginning of the full swing of the awakening, you know, toward the beginning of the full swing of the awakening. But it sets in motion some things, as we're going to see, that Edwards is going to have to deal with. And it's going to set in motion some things that are going to cause problems for Edwards, uh, both in the 40s leading up to 1750, as well as later with Hopkins and eventually the development of the new, new divinity. That's the, good. Uh, now, you should, we should note as we close out 1742 that Religious Affections, though it's published a few years later, is based on sermons preached uh, beginning at the end of 1742 and going into 1743. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's happening at this time, right? And that and that might account for why why religious affections and distinguishing marks look like they're coming from the same place, so to speak. It's it, religious affections is a more developed uh, consideration of what a, what the, what are the marks of a true Christian, and of course the whole the whole context for that is the 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 metaphorically the raging fires of the revival dying down uh, and a cooling of the ardor of of the christians uh, in northampton especially but in other places throughout the colonies and edwards is is trying to figure out okay why is that happening why is it that that people who were seem to be on fire for the lord are now cooling off Hmm. And, and so he comes to the conclusion that, that some of those who 
uh, thought they had come to faith in Christ may not have, in fact, that may not have happened. Right. But that that will get to, I guess, in 1746 when we get to the actual publication of the religious affections. Yeah, and I think it's important to note there uh, as well, Jeff. He is trying to wrestle with that uh, that that issue, trying to distinguish between true and false conversion, those who think they were converted but uh, but in fact aren't. And I don't know that I want to make over much of this, but I don't think we need to underestimate it either that, that prior to the publication in 46 of Religious Affections, uh, there is in some ways kind of a humorous event that happens, but it, but it became, I think, kind of a watershed moment in the life of Edwards uh, that probably caused him to take a good hard look at the spiritual condition of, uh, of the flock there in Northampton. That was in 44 with the, uh, the bad bookcase. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and the response to Edwards over that, because it was um, all, all that had been going on in terms of the, uh, the revival and all of the excitement and all of the, uh, the fervor surrounding that, uh, it was Marsden who said of the bad bookcase, again in 44, that much of what Jonathan Edwards had built up in the, pa- in the past 15 years came crashing down in one small town squabble. Yeah, That's on page 292 of his, uh, of his big book. And that was the uh, the bad bookcase. <laughs> so let's talk about the bad bookcase because I, I know Jeff was the one that introduced me to that. I did not know that years ago. Jeff told me all about that. And what I mean, what was the bad book incident? What happened? How did that affect the congregation? Was Edwards to blame at all in any of, of the proceedings with that? Um, okay. Well, let's see, Dave. The, uh, the bad book incident involves some young men in the town who are also in the congregation getting a hold of a midwife's book midwifery book uh which would be i guess the the closest thing that they would get to pornography right it had uh, illustrations it had illustra- it had illustrations now these when i say young men understand that these are young men not not teenagers they're probably in their what 20s and 30s yeah uh, and, they're, and they're taunting the girls they're they're teasing the girls i read in one account you know, one of them saying to one of the girls, I know more about ye than ye know about ye, <laughs> because yes. he had seen these illustrations and so forth. So they're, they really, we would classify that behavior as sexual harassment, uh, mm-hmm. and, and rightly so, I think. And Edwards, of course, does not tolerate this and, and seeks to, 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 to ascertain uh, the source of the problem, what happened, who's, who's at fault, and who... Who has been harassed, and and in one of the church services, he makes an announcement. You know, the following people are to come to uh, the uh, my home, or, or or to meet with meet with me, and he lists he rattles off a whole list of names, and he fails to distinguish between those who are witnesses, victims, and those who are he thinks are guilty of committing the uh, the harassment and that is what sets up uh i think david you probably i think you're you would be of the same mind this this is the beginning of the end for edward's pastoral ministry in northampton i totally agree i think um i think this does set up the beginning of the end uh, because up to this point you're looking at years of relative popularity right i mean i think he he not only filled Stoddard's shoes, I think he created his own pair of shoes and, and filled them. But I think at this point, 
you begin to see the tide turn against him. And let's admit, um, though we, we would share his concern, and we would share his sense of outrage over this, because it is, it is more serious than it is comical. Yes. Um, nonetheless, it probably wasn't the smoothest act of pastoral sensitivity to, to handle it in the way that, that he did. And so people were offended, and there was confusion, etc. And, it, and it, it's at this point, uh, again, uh, Marsden, and I love the way that he said this, and he combines the bad bookcase along with the uh, subsequent communion controversy, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. He says that, um, and this is on page three, 349 of Marsden's uh, big book, uh, that Edwards was willing to sell the ship of his pastorate into the teeth of the storm. Hmm. And by that, he's talking about the controversies beginning with bad book and you know culminating in, in things related to communion. And so you, you combine that with the fact that uh, around this time, there started to be controversy over his, uh, his salary, his wages, and um, things like the congregation thinking that uh, that he was extravagant because he had two powdered wigs instead of one, and that Sarah had how dare he silver? I know oh. exactly. Well, and, you know, and look, I typically only keep one powdered wig on hand. I, I don't I, even powder my wig, my friend. <laughs> no, I, I dread. I let my wig get some dreads in it. I mean, <laughs> wasn't it said of John Owen that that he had enough powder in his wig to prime a cannon or something like that? Yeah. But anyway, you know, he was thought of as extravagant. I think you know Sarah had silver buckles on her shoe instead of wood. And there's just a lot of nitpicking things that started happening and criticisms and, and again, the tide turning against Edwards. But, but this was a significant event, and uh, I don't think we can, we can really underestimate it. Jeff, it was the beginning of yeah. the end because you, just a few years later, as we'll get to, uh, the end came. Well, you uh, know, I look at this, and I mean, from, from my point of view, how can you not see um, satanic attack, spiritual warfare? I mean, here God uses... Edwards almost singularly. I mean, Whitfield Edwards, and I know there are others that he's using. Davies but, down in Virginia. But I mean, Edwards right. for this massive revival, almost unparalleled in the history of the church, you know, since the apostolic age. And then right after that, not two years later, he's on his way out because of this incident that wasn't even something he did morally wrong. There might have been some pastoral, you know, lack of wisdom in how the situation got handled. But you see how Satan can just get in there and turn a congregation that was grateful for him against him. You well, know, this, this had already happened. He had already had that kind of experience. If you remember, Dave, when, what was it, his uh, uncle who uh, committed suicide by cutting his throat, Joseph Hawley? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and he um, tried to talk him out of it. Right. That that was the that brought the initial uh, harvest, if you want to use that language, the initial revival in Northampton uh, came to an end with the uh, the Joseph Hawley committing suicide. So the we do see Satan sowing tares among the wheat, uh, as we uh, ought to expect by now that this is his way. Uh, to counterfeit, okay, if you can't counterfeit, you know, can't create hypocritical Christians, we'll, we'll sabotage the uh, the effectiveness of the gospel uh, with people taking their own lives because they can't, can't, uh, you know, get a relief for their, their uh, guilty consciences. Mm, but, right. And the other thing, too, I think that, you know, we'd... 
it'd be important for us to note, and again, not to make over much of this, but when you read authoritative, you know, biographies of, of Edward, such as Mars Nagura, etc., uh, you know, they, they do bring out that Edwards was, again, not the most relationally savvy person right. that uh, has ever, you know, fulfilled a pastorate. Uh, Marsden says on page 349 that he had a brittle and unsociable personality, or on page 344, he was never given to excessive tact. And right. so, you know, and that does go a far away. It's easier on himself. Right, right. That goes, even though, obviously, you can, you can, you know, cover compromise under diplomacy or whatnot. I mean, there's also, there's also, you know, pastoral wisdom and tact that I think does go a long way. And, you know, being open with people and vulnerable yourself. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you hear a lot of the great preachers in church history were either very introverted or they were not good with people. And yet God used them powerfully in preaching, you know, but as far as um, pastoral ministry goes, they, they oftentimes lack that kind of grandfatherly warmth, um, you know. And that, and that was probably the case with Edwards, although um, when you read the account of the way that he conducted himself with his wife and his children, it's very, very tender. Yeah. And you have to imagine when yeah. you read the way that he interacted with the Indians at Stockbridge and how how sensitive he was with his sermons. When you read some of those sermons, those are very, very tender they are. appeals to them. Um, at the same time, I think there were probably instances throughout this where the pressure was on him, the criticisms were coming. He was seeing the disillusion of, of, um, of what was perceived as wide-scale conversion taking place. He saw the morality issues happening, and I think it got to him, and he probably didn't follow... Uh, the scriptural dictum of a soft answer turns away wrath, uh, wrath or, um, you know, you get more flies with honey than vinegar. That's in the MSV, the Mid-South version. So right. I think <laughs> right. you need to at least acknowledge that. Yeah, and I mean, I think your point is well made about his own warmth with his family. I've read some of the letters he wrote to his son Timothy when his son was off at college and just very warm and personable. And it's not the kind of letter that makes you think that he didn't have a relationship with his son. Um, And I think you can find those letters on the Yale site if you um, search for them there. Um, Moving on. Volume 16 of the... the, Can I I just add one more, a couple more things? That would be that uh, there are things going on in the larger culture that uh, shifts in in mores and expectations, of which the uh, bad book controversy is one element, one symptom, and that is young men not being able to marry. I I believe Marsden discusses this in his uh, big book, and that's to distinguish it from his Little Edwards book. Uh, I believe Marsden does deal with that. There's also the issue of uh, the growing sense of, for lack of a better expression, democratization. Uh, Edwards very clearly holds to the prerogatives of a minister, and that may be some of what we're describing as prickliness is actually his uh, hierarchical uh, cultural sensibilities. Right. Uh, again, other scholars have commented on this. Uh, McDermott, I think, in his book on public theology, has talked about that. Mm-hmm. Edwards, public theology. It's important thing. That's an important thing to note, Jeff. I think culture is starting to, in a sense, leave Edwards behind a little bit, at least with regard to the way he viewed the authoritative nature uh, of the pastoral office. 
I mean, you start to become more and more alone in that. Yes. I mean, you see that in, even in his own sermons where he's preaching at the ordination of other men for the ministry. He held the, a very high view of the ministerial office. Right. And I think that probably feeds into some of the, uh, the conflict he had with his own congregation. Now, earlier we had talked about religious affections being uh, published in, in 1746. So that brings us to 1746. Uh, he's uh, published the uh, the sermon series that he had preached a few years earlier. And probably, wouldn't you guys agree that religious affections and freedom of the will are perhaps the two best known, apart from sinners in the hands of an angry God, perhaps the two best known things for which Edwards is known? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. At the same time, I would say they're probably not the two places that uh, we should encourage new readers of Edwards to begin. <laughs> right, and I think our show has adequately, you know, tried to whet the appetite of all of you to be reading different sermons that he wrote, so oh. many sermons that really give you a feel. Um, I was talking to one of the main critics of Edwards um, in the Reform world, and there are, you know, critics in some of our Reform seminaries, and he was saying how horrible Edwards was, and why did anybody like them? And I said, have you ever read any of his sermons? And he was like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of rich stuff in in so much of what he's written. Um, let's move on, guys, just because we have several decades left. Um, but, <laughs> well, but, well... 14 years, actually. No, yeah. I'm sorry, four... So, 14 years, yeah. Yeah, so 1745, Whitfield again visits Northampton. D- does anybody know? Do you all know if that's a response to the the, sh- the strife that's going on? Is that an attempt to kind of um, to uh, settle things a bit after mm. the bad book event? Not that I'm aware of. I, th- I, I could be wrong on this, David. Maybe you remember, but it, I think it's just a visit by yeah. a friend. Oh, one yeah. of the things I fa- failed to note earlier – one of the criticisms that Edwards ga- gave to Whitfield was his over reliance on impressions. Yeah. Okay, and and apparently Whitfield took that that criticism to heart, uh, and and became less enamored with you know, uh, the sense of the Lord's direction through emotional responses, uh, and relied more, uh, thankfully, upon the Word of God. Uh, but uh, I don't think there was any relationship. Are, are you aware of any there, uh, David? No, it just I think it's the ongoing relationship that existed between them and the fondness that existed. I think it is important, though, uh, to you know, to your point, um, for Whitfield to become maybe a little more textual after that admonition by Edwards. Uh, you know, if you put yourself in Whitfield's shoes, here he was a traveling preacher, and he had a stock of sermons that uh, he could preach and, and re-preach and really depend on that, that oratory mastery uh, that, that he had. And whereas, you know, the difference between him and, say, Edwards is Edwards is that weekly pulpit preacher. Right. Uh, creating, crafting new sermons on new texts, et, et cetera. So they really are contrasting personalities and really contrasting methodologies. I have a, I have a picture of, of myself. I need to put on my blog of me at the uh, Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, where Whitfield preached his famous sermon, What Think Ye of Christ, on December 21st of 1739, right before he shows up the first time at uh, Northampton. But it's just a fascinating 
relationship between the two, I think. Do, do you have a, um, a powdered wig on in the picture? No, but I should have. Next time I'm in Williamsburg, <laughs> I, I mean, will take come my on. powdered wig. <laughs> Dave, come on. I will on. take powdered wig. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's move on a little bit into the late 1740s. Um, Religious Affections, published in 46. Then you have all this historical stuff going on with Edward. You have the French and the Indian War. You have the French and the Indians taking Fort Massachusetts. You have the Edwards Parsonage forted in, quartered with soldiers. Um, I think that's kind of hard for us to even understand all that's going on historically in this period outside of the church, just in American history in that area of America and New England. Um, it so- really is. And if our readers want a taste of that, just the opening 20, 30 pages of Marsden's big book. Um, in, in considerable detail, will give you uh, a fearful impression, mm-hmm. <laughs> since we're using that language, of what people were facing then, the mm-hmm. dangers. Yeah, and then uh, 1747, enormous year, because this is where Brainerd really comes into the picture, right? Um, I don't know a lot about Edwards and Brainerd's relationship before this, um, but... Brainerd shows up in Northampton in 47. He ends up dying in Northampton in 47, right? Yes. Uh, on October 9th, uh, 1747, he dies in the home of Edwards. Uh, Edwards, I suspect, had some felt may have felt some a debt of obligation to Brainerd because Brainerd was kicked out of Yale College. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a comment about one of his instructors uh, he said he had no more spirituality than this chair, wooden chair, uh, and that led to his expulsion. And and uh, Edwards giving the, that uh, distinguishing Mark's sermon, uh, there was some connection there. My, my memory is failing me exactly. Uh, but Edwards, of course, uh, published the diary of David Brainerd. Uh, who was known as uh, is best known as a missionary to uh, Indians, Native American. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, in in um, eventually ending up uh, in New Jersey at Cross Weeksing, which is more or less in the Greater Trenton area. Uh, and I've have you read David the uh, the Diary of David Brainerd? Yes, and here's the interesting little tidbit about that. Uh, my understanding is, is of everything Edwards ever wrote, the most popular or the best-selling thing he ever it wrote is. was this uh, the life, life of Brainerd. Brainerd. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It it is basically, um, I would say, I think I've heard it put this way: uh, in the English language, the typical Christian in the 19th century had two books uh, uh, in addition to the Bible. One was uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and the other would have been the Diary of David Brainerd, edited by Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fascinating, uh, in my opinion, fascinating biography, but uh, troublesome in many ways. Mm-hmm. That that young man was, um, I guess, melancholic would be the way I would describe him. Yep. Uh, also, and, to, and to think that uh, in God's providence, he becomes the standard by which to to determine whether you have a call to the mission field. That's actually scary to me, because when you read it, uh, it is an example of God's grace and working through an imperfect vessel, uh, a cracked pot, 
if I may put it that way. Uh, I guess we all are crackpots in that sense, uh, in the Pauline sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, Brainerd was uh, was was not. I guess I wouldn't have held him up as the the epitome of the spiritual Christian. Well, I mean, he has he is the walking example of. Um, He's the walking example of morbid introspection. Exactly. Um, and, and it's funny because I love Bunyan, and I've read much of Bunyan's works, but you read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. There are no two books besides Brainerd's Diary and and Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners that will distress your own soul mm-hmm. with regard to assurance. You know, one day I'm near to God, the next day I'm sure he's going to damn me to hell. Um, and it's it, it really leaves you – it leaves you unsettled um, as to, you know, I think, I think Brainerd is the example of navel gazing at this point. Yes. Well, obviously we're all for searching introspection. We have to examine ourselves, see whether we're in, we're in the faith, you know, Robert Murray McShane's for every, you know, one look within take 10 looks to Jesus cannot be said of Brainerd's uh, experientialism. Um, and even Edwards at times, would you guys agree? I mean, I, I would at least raise that criticism of Edwards at points. I mean, the fact that he's drawn to publish Brainerd's diary, apparently a very heavily edited diary, uh, which supposedly had the worst parts removed, which kind of makes me wonder what the worst parts were, <laughs> uh, given what he left in. Uh, again, uh, I have to be careful, but 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 I, I the, the positive thing I can take from it is, is that. Uh, God works with imperfect servants. Sure, and and oftentimes the guys that lacked assurance in church history are the guys that were used the most. I mean, Newton struggled with assurance, Adolphe Monat. When you read a lot of these biographies, these guys wrestled deeply, which is why they ended up preaching Christ the way they did, because right. they were longing for it. I heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson say John Owen grappled with assurance, didn't have it for the first five years of his Christian life, and that's why you find so much like his exposition of Psalm 130 um, in the works of Owen on a believer's assurance. Um, but Brainerd, I mean, I can say this, was a mess spiritually on the issue of assurance um, up and down his entire life. I don't know that he ever came to a place, did he, where he he felt comfortable and confident that he was in the hand of Christ and he didn't have these just constant ups and downs. Well, he would have fleeting moments of, of peace. Yeah. But that's how I'm – David, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, I think – I don't think we can point to a, to a final, definitive, sustainable settledness. No. And I wonder, you know, you know, Edwards being so taken with with Brainerd had to, has to be seen against the backdrop of all of the, how do we say it, sort of casual Christianity mm-hmm. that was frustrating him. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think at the end it does get back to what uh, what we're saying here: uh, the Lord works through the weakest of us, and praise God for that. Absolutely. Now, Brainerd had a very interesting relationship. We could at least touch on just quickly um, with. Edward's daughter, Jerusha, who was considerably younger than him, if I remember correctly, and she nursed him on his deathbed. They they had something of a supposed romance, even though it's not really talked about, right? That's more speculation from the facts that we have. I, I think so. Um, and although, then, although I think there, you know, obviously there was some sort of uh, 
pardon the use of the word affection. Yeah. Uh, there was a special relationship, whether it was a full romantic relationship. I guess we'll never know until we all get to to the to heaven. But uh, and but at that point, we probably will have more important things to do than to ask that question. <laughs> and uh, she she nurses him on his deathbed, and then she dies the beginning does, just a couple of months later. And I've I've heard I don't know if it was John Piper, but I heard someone posit at some point, or maybe I read this that. That there's speculation that perhaps she died and got and su- suffered um, deathly sickness as a result of having lost the one she loved. You know, you hear about those things all the time with a couple, an elderly couple, and one of them dies, and then just a couple months later, the other one dies, even though they had been in health. Um, so I don't know if there's any truth to that. Possible, whether it's true or not. I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. I, I'll be the speculative one for you guys. There you go. <laughs> Well, well, now a bit, we're up to 1748-49. Uh, we're now getting into the conflicts Edwards will have with his congregation over the communion controversy, among other things. Yes, as I said earlier, you know, he, he filled the big shoes of, uh, of Stoddard uh, when Stoddard died back in 29. It's okay to fill big shoes, just don't get too big for your britches. And I think that's the way the congregation saw Edwards at this point because, you know, Stoddard had removed the fence, as it were, back in 1700 with his the doctrine of the instituted churches. Uh, and now Edwards is attempting to rebuild the fence with regard to access to communion. And so, yeah, in 49, uh, a humble inquiry into the rules of the word of God concerning the qualifications requisite to a complete standing in full communion in the visible Christian church. And I think here you see come to... Um, you know, sort of full-scale war, what was started with the bad bookcase, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Jeff. Yeah, the, uh, now one of, we might want to go back a little and mention that there was a, uh, because this figures into the council that's of ministers that is called to uh, arbitrate, I guess is the, the word, or adjudicate the, the, the controversy between Edwards and his congregation. Uh a gentleman by the name of Robert Breck had been called to be the pastor of the church, the Congregational Church in Springfield, the place where I lived uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. Not at, not at the time that Edwards was in Northampton, just to make that clear. Uh, and it turns out that he was an Armenian leaning toward Unitarianism, if I remember correctly. And Edwards, uh, along with several other ministers in Massachusetts, uh, fought against the 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 um the man relocating and becoming the pastor there in Springfield as it turned out uh he did take Robert Brecht did take the call and probably had a very long memory because he ended up being uh serving on this council of ministers committee of ministers to adjudicate the disagreement between Edwards and his congregation on the Lord's Supper and as we most of us will know the the ministerial council agreed with the congregation that Edwards should be uh, dismissed or deposed from his ministry in Northampton. That's 1750. The actual council, I think, is uh, begins to meet actually the day after Christmas uh, in 1749. 1750, he is deposed, and yet... Uh, and this is maybe a little-known fact if you're not an Edwards uh, uh, student of Edwards. Uh, he actually 
filled the pulpit for almost a year. Wasn't that right, David? After yeah, it did. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting <laughs> thing. You know, really the the insolence of um, of the Northamptonites after they get rid of him. <laughs> we don't we don't want you as our pastor, but but by the way, we really need somebody to fill the pulpit. So right, exactly. would you mind doing that for almost a year? Exactly. It really is. Uh, I mean, just just the audacity. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a dark hour for Northampton. Um, yes. At, at this at this juncture, and I. You know, I talked about Marsden a second ago, who who said that um, from Edward's perspective, he was not unafraid to sell his ship into the teeth of the storm. Uh, Philip Gura, in his little biography, which sort of represents, you know, if if Marsden sort of represents the the Yale stream, Gura's uh, represents the the the, the Harvard. Uh, strain, kind of that that Perry Miller strain in terms of the, those two recent biographies of, of Edwards. But it was Gura who says on page 158 of his little book, and I thought this was very telling, uh, at its core, the church members' dispute with Edwards hinged on whether they could continue to exercise church privileges that by then they presumed as rights. And that, that really is the, so on June 22nd of 1750, a vote of 230 to 23 to to dismiss Edwards. And it's interesting, uh, Dr. Guy Waters down at RTS Jackson knew I was teaching for uh, Charlotte, my course in Edwards, and he sent, he sent to me a family lineage chart for his wife, Sarah, who is the maternal granddaughter of Eleanor Louise Holbrook, who is the four times great granddaughter of Lieutenant, of Lieutenant Benjamin Lyman, who was one of the 23 who voted to keep Edwards. Interesting. Interesting little tidbit there, yeah. Isn't there a discussion somewhere, David, about the makeup of the, the vote? Uh, women, were they allowed to vote? No, the, these were the men who, right. who voted. I, I, I do believe that uh, someone has argued, whether it's you know accurate or not, that if the women had been allowed to vote, they probably would not have been not have deposed Edwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, of course, that's all speculative. We'll never know. Uh, the answer to that question, but that raises the whole issue of uh, you know voting in the church, and uh, but anyways, uh, so he hangs around for a year. Uh, it takes a, he finally gets a call to be the missionary uh, to the Stockbridge Indians through uh, through uh, Hopkins, right? Hopkins rallies to get him called to Stockbridge, right? Well, yeah, he ha- he has remember at the time that he's deposed, he's got people uh looking out for him in right. terms of another call, including as you know uh David and Nick friends in the in Scotland. Right. You remember Yeah, uh, it's interesting thing about Scotland. I have here in my study a 1790 edition of the 1754 Freedom of the Will, and the interesting thing uh, about that and the dating of that is that after Edwards has gone on to be with the Lord uh, in the in the late 1790s, his works are still selling, readily selling in Scotland, and so yeah, they wanted him to come across across uh, you know the generosity and the appeal uh, the appeal of the Scottish. They wanted him to come, um, but it's it's they interesting. Actually, they had the first painting of Edwards made. They they gathered the money, John McCarran got the money together for the first portrait of Edwards. Like they looked up to him that much. Um, they yes, also, the actual, 
Go ahead. The only one I've seen it. It's there. You can see it at um, at Princeton. And they uh, they secured for Edwards the um, the the publishing of religious affections, I believe, and that they would not do it until they had enough signatures from Scottish ministers. I mean, they revered him. So at the they time, revered- that's a good point, Jeff. That at the time when he is being most unappreciated in the United States, he's being most appreciated overseas. He had a friend, John Erskine, uh, there in Scotland, who was you know, largely responsible for this invitation, this desire to have him across. And it's very, and this is very uh, enlightening into the heart of Edwards at this time. Very, very brief little snippet here. He writes to Erskine and he says, But I am now, as it were, thrown upon the wide ocean of the world and know not what will become of me and my numerous and chargeable family, nor have I any particular door in view that I depend upon to be open for my future serviceableness. Most places in New England that want to minister would not be forward to invite one with so chargeable a family, i.e. so large a family, nor one so far advanced in years, being 46 the fifth day uh, of last October. Now, that's interesting because I'm 46. I'll be 47 in September. So he's my age now. I am fitted, he says, for no other business but study. I should make a poor hand of getting a living by any secular employment. We are in the hands of God, and I bless him. I am not anxious concerning his disposal of us, I hope I shall not distrust him, nor be unwilling to submit to his will. And I have cause of thankfulness that there seems also to be such a disposition in my family. So that's how they're responding to all of this. Uh, As the Scottish are calling him over, even even in Virginia, Samuel Davies, uh, who lived from 1723 to 61, he's the the apostle of Virginia, right? He basically calls up to Edwards. I think he he emails him or Facebooks him or something, and he says, look, (laughs) come Come down to Virginia, and I will give my pulpit to you. Yeah. So he does have people looking out for him. Is, yeah. Is, 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 it, is it Erskine who asks him if he could uh, sign on to the Westminster Standards, uh, David? Yes. Okay, he says, and, and Edward says he, he had no problem. He agrees with the, the substance of the confession, and, that, and he goes on and he says, actually, I prefer the Presbyterian form of church government to the confused and chaotic congregational form. That is the standard here in New England. Uh, something to that effect. That's my paraphrase. And and what I was looking for, and I didn't realize this, that um, earlier, surprising narrative was first published in Edinburgh because of these men and his connection in 37. And distinguishing marks was published in Edinburgh and Glasgow in 1742. So some of his works were even published in Scotland before they were published in the States. Yeah, the, the transatlantic context of Edwards. It is multi-layered. Mm-hmm. Just what you yeah. mentioned there, Nick, to the fact that so much of what Edwards was motivated to write had to do with deism being shipped across the Atlantic. But the transatlantic context of Edwards is crucial for understanding his theology, understanding his life, understanding events like this and the way the Scottish play into it. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and it's interesting that the, the – um the painting that they had made, it was 1750, the year he was rejected. And listen to this, um, John McLaren writes, as care has been taken to preserve to us the faces of so many other eminent authors and other persons, it seems a pity if no such respect is put on an author whose past and possibly some future composures may come to be more regarded when the world's taste men's. And so they saw the greatness of Edwards. That's the year. Think about that, the honor that he's getting from yeah. them when he's getting dishonor from his own congregation. Mm-hmm. Right. It's amazing. So 1750-51 uh, is that year 
of him filling the pulpit, although he's been deposed from the pastoral ministry there, eventually gets the call to be the missionary to the uh, Indians in the Stockbridge area, which is further west uh, than than uh, Northampton and Springfield, in the direction of Albany, New York. Uh, it later Stockbridge will later become the home of the painter Norman Rockwell. Mm. So you, if you're familiar with his work, you will have seen pictures of Stockbridge from the 1920s, 30s, and so on. Uh, but but at that point, it's not the quaint little New England town. It is a an outpost, and Edwards will have responsibility uh, to uh, at, at the missionary outpost to the Indians, the natives, but also to the white congregation, mm-hmm. and also have oversight of a school for native uh, children that will involve him in more conflict. Uh, I think I've mentioned this in in the past. Uh, he had a conflict with the Williams family. Uh, they they fueled the conflict over the uh, communion issue at Northampton, and then others in the in that extended family were involved with the uh, the Stockbridge School. Uh, and there's a whole scenario there that we don't need to go into. But it's just interesting. The Williams family they are actually related to Edwards. Uh, And this is the same family that gives its name to Williamstown, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and Williams College. Uh, Williams College, where the Great Haystack Revival occurred later in American history. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyways, uh, so Edwards couldn't get rid of the Williams family. They were powerful. Uh, Ephraim Williams was a very wealthy landowner in Stockbridge. Uh, that's part of the problem is that he, that they they were wealthy and owned land and there were issues of the proper dealings with the with the uh, natives uh, but edwards was highly respected by the natives mm-hmm. in stockbridge i'm not sure how well he was respected by the white people uh but certainly he stood up for the natives mm-hmm. and ultimate and ultimately in the dispute over who would be running or dis- responsible for the school he prevailed. He had had correspondence with the sponsor of the school, a Baptist man over in the in England, uh, and uh, prevailed. And uh, and if sometimes people think they think about those seven years or so in Stockbridge as years of boredom and quiet, obviously it had to be that way for Edwards to publish all those amazing uh, books that he did while he was in Stockbridge, right? Yeah, it's it is remarkable. Seventeen fifty three, he he uh, completes his first draft of Freedom of the Will, and you think about this. I I don't know if it was Kimnack or one of the editors of Yale said that um, Edwards wrote one of the greatest philosophical treaties in human history on the brink of civilization. He's there, you know, the brink of civilization on an Indian reservation. And he writes Freedom of the Will, and then he writes the next year, and for which God created, or two years later, and for which God created the world. And um, Nature of True Virtue, yes. And Nature of True Virtue. Yeah, which are just massive philosophical works. Right. And, but, and those, it, I would say, those neither of those are great places for new readers of Edwards to start. Right. Exactly. No. Um, no. Neither, even though John Piper has published a very nice edition of the end for which God created the world, mm-hmm. with very helpful... Yeah, his part uh, is very helpful, yeah. Uh, but uh, 
and remember, you know, one of one of the the ideas why people thought nothing was happening in Stockbridge was one they didn't uh, didn't read the personal correspondence. <laughs> if you read volume sixteen of the works of Edwards, you will see plenty of correspondence between Edwards and the powers that be uh, in government. Uh, he 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 knew all sorts of people: the governor, the secretary of state uh, for the Commonwealth or for the colony. Uh, but uh, the truth is, uh, if you know the miscellanies, you know that uh, he was constantly wrestling with various theological, philosophical, and biblical exegetical issues. And w- what you discover is that he was able to put together some of these major treatises uh, in such short periods of time, and uh, in uh, in short periods of time, because he was actually ruminating on them over many, many years in his miscellaneous, his semi-private notebooks. And he'll often take over whole segments mm-hmm. of the miscellaneous and, and put them either in a sermon or, or in one of his treatises. Yeah, yeah, you'll come across things in a sermon that you you know you've read elsewhere in Edwards. Right. That is very interesting. Uh, so he spends seven years uh, in Stockbridge and is actually apparently quite content uh, he, because, uh, as we've already said, his son-in-law, Aaron Burr, uh, passes away, and he is approached by the trustees of the what we now know as Princeton University. It would have been the College of New Jersey uh, at that point. Nassau Hall, I guess, it was actually what it was known as. Uh, and they contact him, not once, but at least twice, right, David? Yes. Uh, and, and the first time he says, no, thank you. Uh, and I guess a few months pass, right? And then they, uh, the trustees contact him again. And Edwards says the following. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, he writes, uh, he writes a, really a, a very eloquent letter. And um, we don't have time to read the whole of it, but there are a couple of there are a couple of passages that I think are, are pertinent and, again, very insightful to the heart of Edwards at the time. His reason for rejecting the offer uh, at this point, he says, the chief duty in my mind, uh, and this is on page 726 of the, uh, of the print edition of Yale, six, uh, volume 16, the chief difficulty in my mind in the way of accepting this important and arduous office are these two. First, my own defects, unfitting me for such an undertaking, many of which are generally known. Besides other, which my own heart is conscious to, I have a constitution in many respects peculiar unhappy, attended with flaccid solids, vapid, sizzy, and scarce fluids, which I heard at one point referred to as a case of TMI, too much information. (laughs) But uh, flaccid solids, vapid, sizzy, and scarce fluids, and a low tide of spirits, often occasioning a kind of childish weakness and contemptibleness of speech, presence and demeanor with a disagreeable dullness and stiffness much unfitting me for conversation but more especially for the government of a college this poorness of constitution makes me shrink at the thoughts of taking upon me in the decline of life such a new and great business attended with such a multiplicity of cares and requiring such a degree of activity alertness and spirit of government especially a succeeding one so remarkably well qualified in these respects giving occasion everyone to remark the wide difference. I am also deficient in some parts of learning, particularly in algebra and the higher parts of mathematics and in the Greek classics. My Greek learning 
having chiefly been in the New Testament. The other thing is this, that my engaging in this business will not well consist with those views and that course of employ in my study, which have long engaged and swallowed up my mind and been the chief entertainment and delight of my life. He's referring there to his, really, in some respects, the relative leisure he had been enjoying at Stockbridge to devote himself to study and to writing. And he goes on in this letter to say, look, there are some things that I want to turn my attention to. Uh, one of those things was the rational account, uh, which was going to be what we might say is something of a systematic theological text. His other was the harmony of the Old and New Testament. And then he wanted to get back to the history of the work of redemption, which, Nick, as you began this show talking about back in 39, was a series of sermons where he preached his real, really a response to an enlightenment view of history. Right now, he's preaching a biblical view of history uh, with some historicist uh, hermeneutic in there. But nonetheless, his his approach to uh, a Christian philosophy of history, and he says, I want to turn my attention back to that, those series of sermons. He's going to turn it into a treatise that he called a body of divinity and an entire new method being thrown into the form of an history, considering the affair of Christian theology, the whole of it, and each part stands in relation uh, to the rest, uh, reference to the great work of redemption by Jesus Christ, again, historically considered. Uh, and he called it a method most beautiful and entertaining. And so these three works, he was afraid if I go to the College of New Jersey, I'll never have the time uh, to complete these three works, the rational account and uh, the harmony of the Old New Testament and um, turning the history of the work of redemption from a series of sermons into a full-blown treatise. Yeah, also we want to mention that, and that's an outstanding place for us to, you know, end our attention, but also that he, he completed original sin. I don't know if you, you said yes, that if I mixed that, that, but that original like sin all, also, in addition to all that, that as you were saying, all of his, um, future ambitions and where he was moving his focus. It's really remarkable, isn't it, that he is, Edwards is developing as a theologian in such a way that he writes, and and correct me if you guys think I'm wrong about this, but freedom of the will, true virtue, and for which the God, God creates the world and original sin are massive philosophical, ra- the rational theology of Edwards. You know how massive, things work. It's massive philosophical theological inquiry. He begins original sin in '56. It's actually published posthumously, but he begins right. that in '56. And so, I mean, he's man. You're talking about intellectual horsepower. Yeah, he's firing on all cylinders right now. And then doing redemptive history with his old and new testament thing, history of the work of redemption and all that focus and so you almost have these two lines. You have the redemptive historical and you have the philosophical. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if that's reductionistic to say that, but you really see him um I mean his his theology climaxes um yeah. in the second part of his life. Firing. That's why I was saying I think he's firing on all cylinders. As you've said, Nick, there's the, there's the exegetical, there's the biblical theological, there's the philosophical, the systematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he's at this time preaching very simple, not simplistic, but very simple childlike sermons to Houstonic Indians. Mm. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I, I've often um, looked at the, the sermons to Indians to see how they differ, differ on a certain text. And, you know, they are, there is something uh, very simple and plain um, about them, and yet substantive, convicting, you know, still full of theology, but very basic, and yet, I mean, it's just fascinating that this man 
could um, could reach to those spectrums. In some respects, too, he's a model because you have um, in the church, you have the guys who are the ivory tower theologians, and then you have the guys, the, the, the feet on the ground guys. And Edwards is really both. Yes. Um, he is just such a dynamic figure. Now, um, absolutely. And, and when you look at those sermons that he preached to the, to the natives, you, uh, they are simple, but there's a, be- a, a simple beauty Mm-hmm. Uh, to the ones that I've looked at, I'm going, yeah, I, I wish I had that ability to adjust mm-hmm. to the to the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he seemed to have had that ability. Uh, and now, of course, he's as as we've already said, he was he was content to stay in Stockbridge, uh, but he's prevailed upon to to take up the new work as president of, of Princeton. Uh, he actually can't make the decision he can't come to make a decision himself so he he enlists his his friends and ministerial associates to make the decision for him or to make at least a recommendation and they say take the call and so he uh i guess through tears really um does take the call he moves down in the winter uh to to princeton and his wife will join him in the spring well, he comes down uh, in February of uh, 1758 to serve as president, and and there there apparently is a, a smallpox uh, epidemic of sorts uh, in the in the neighborhood, in the area around Princeton, and and to be an example, he gets an inoculation. Well, that inoculation actually backfires on Edwards, and he comes down with the smallpox. Uh, virus and uh, eventually dies in March of 1758. And uh, his the sad story is, is you, I've already mentioned that his daughter died and then his wife dies. Uh, so uh, in God's providence, that's what we would call a hard providence. Uh, yeah. That that, since his wife, after he died, I read, uh, she said to one of the daughters, um, you know, in in response to her husband's death, uh, let us kiss the rod. You know that there's been a rod of discipline in our lives. We've lost Jonathan. Let us let us kiss the rod. Let us, in other words, let us submit to this hard providence. Um, you know, when he died there on March 22nd, I when I was up one time for a conference at uh, Princeton University on Edwards, um, I got to go into. The president's house, which is now an administrative building, but it's it's still there. It's preserved, and you can go in. and, and I got to go up into the room where he where he died, and it's it's just a big open bedroom. And there are a couple of three or four desks in there, and you know, it's an administrative place with folks working in there. But you can go into the room, and it's just an office now. Um, but you know, I love the story of of him on his deathbed, and he's you know he's basically. Uh, asphyxiating he's he's suffocating and he's gasping for breath and you know friends are around and he he you know says he, he says now he, he died he appears to have died and they begin to mourn and he sort of revives and and um and says you know tell sarah that the the union we have is an uncommon union and will some sense be represented in the in, um, in heaven and then 
He seems to have breathed his last, and they begin to mourn again, and he sort of rallies and says, now where is that Jesus of Nazareth, my good and faithful friend? And he appears to have breathed his last, and they begin to mourn, and then he rallies one last time and says, trust in God, and ye need not fear. And then he indeed breathes his last. It's just a remarkable story of, of uh, I'm fascinated at times by the words of some of these giants upon whose shoulders we stand. Um, the, the words on their lips, on their deathbeds. It's really fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a great place for us to end. Um, I know that these last two episodes have covered an enormous amount of um, Edward's life and ministry, and yet we've only barely scratched the surface of all that can be gleaned as you read um, different biographies by George Marston and Ian Murray and many, many of the editors who have written things at the beginning of uh, many of the Yale volumes, historical facts and details about where Edwards preached, when he preached, incidents that happened, the historical background. And we encourage you, as, as I plan on doing, to dig in deeper to um, to understand more of the greatness of Edwards, to get more excited about his literature. We hope that this is um, just something that would whet your appetite to um, to work through many, many, many of his works. We are excited about the future of the show, and jumping back into it, we have um, lots of sermons to cover. We hope to have um, Edwards scholars and authors on, so please stay tuned. And Jeff and Dave, it was great being back with you. Um, looking forward to future recordings with you. And we hope that all of you who have faithfully listened will tune in again for another episode of East of Eden, the Biblical and System theology of Jonathan Edwards.